Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film Cool podcast for the week of August 5th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne, I'm a filmmaker. I'm here with, you're a filmmaker, Todd Blankenship. Am I a filmmaker, Todd Blankenship? That's right. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I'm here with filmmaker and writer and extraordinaire Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. And editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, uh, our first story is going to be about maintaining perspective through the edit process. Maintaining perspective on your work, maintaining the audience's perspective in the edit room, and protecting your baby through a complicated process. Then we're going to be talking about doing nothing to get ahead, which is like, oh my God, do nothing is such a great slogan. And uh, we're going to be following that up with some tech news. Resolve 18 has left beta. There's some killer good cloud tools. The color management remains sick. And we're going to be talking about that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our first subject is editorial perspective. Now, perspective means like a billion things in the edit. You will hear editorial perspective talked about of like, what is the filmmaker's perspective on the intent of this scene? What are the characters' perspectives on what's happening? But there's also what is your audience's perspective as they follow along in a scene and what is their emotional experience as they are going? But then there's also like your filmmaker's perspective on the scene, not just of like, oh, I want this to feel like this, but it's also like, Oh, I hate everything about this. Cause like I find post to be the emotionally hardest process. Oh, it's a, it is a journey. It is a emotional journey. Yeah. Cause you have to wrangle with what you actually shot. Like uh, there's that great Brisson quote, your movie is born in your head and dies on the page and is born on set and dies in dailies. And then it's born in the edit and it dies on the screen. You know, well, and it, it it's the most like marathon part of oh. you know you're on mile eleven, ten, whatever of of the marathon. You know, it's like the the longest part is still ahead. Like you do this massive feat of shooting the thing or making the thing, and then you you really kind of got like the longest part ahead of you. And it's like it can really oftentimes feel like kind of the least fun part, especially because yeah, you're cutting things that you love out of something, and then. You know, like learning that certain things you don't really love kind of have have to stay because otherwise this other thing doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's 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 a slog sometimes. I mean, the most painful part for me is that in the first couple of weeks, I hate everything. I hate everything, mm. all of it. And I have a couple of filmmaker friends that like I always email when I'm at that point, and they're always like, "You always feel like this. Everybody <laughs> feels like this." P.T. Anderson is on record somewhere as saying the first cut always makes him want to jump in front of a train. And I'm like, yeah, like I just hate it all at the first cut. It's awful because you have these huge dreams all through prep and then production. You're like filled with the summer camp vibes of production and you're high off of that. And then like, you think you've done all this stuff and then you have to come down to earth and look at what you actually shot. And I find that come down the the beginning of posts. It is like so hard to get going. Once I'm going in post, it's fine. And I can start making those decisions and I can be like, oh yeah, this scene that sucks. I need it because it sets up this other thing. And as much as I don't like this camera angle, yeah. But Gigi, you had a specific experience that sort of kicked this off. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm working with uh, editor Christina O'Sullivan for the first time. And we have been working on this project for a couple months now. Uh, It's one of those, especially when you're in the short world, it's easy for the post process to just take a long time because you're meeting outside of work hours and people's schedules. It's not like they can always just go and edit 
so it's been a bit of a stop and go process. And we set a deadline to, to screen something at a backyard film test screening show and tell. And what was interesting is we were feeling great about the edit. And then we saw it in front of an audience. And I knew I wanted to test it out this way because I knew there'd be this like resurgence of energy once we had perspective of hearing it in front of an audience. Um, What was awesome is after we screened it, my editor, Christina, was like, oh, I know exactly what to do. And then she sent a cut last night and she sucked all the air out and made it this just like way punchier, way tighter piece. So I was thinking about that journey of how we had to, you know, we had the luxury of screening it in front of a safe space and an audience. Not everyone has that. How do you maintain perspectives? How do you get from the sort of like, okay, we think this is working. We think this is working. But as a director, being able to like actually zoom out, get that 20,000 foot view and say, oh, actually, we need to cut out 40 seconds of this five minute thing to make it actually flow and get that rhythm. And, you know, I won't always have the luxury of being able to screen with friends at show and tell. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you guys gut check yourself when you're working at a story, especially as Todd said, you know, when you are, you are like in mile, you know, 13 and there's, I don't know how long a marathon is. 27 <laughs> 26. Miles? 26 point something. Yeah. 26? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. That's a long way. I mean, there's so many answers to that question, Gigi. So the first one, I have a bunch too. Do you want to trade? I do one. You do one. Yeah, I'm not good at it, and I think that one of the reasons is I've often been in an editing situation where I had a closer relationship to the material when I've edited something from prior to production, even, and so it's very hard for me to have perspective. It turns into mush rather quickly. And I also am not great at giving the notes that like such and such needs to go because I want things to be good. And I am a big fan of, yeah, it's good. Let's go. Let's move on. You know, one of the quotes that a great person once passed on that I heard was Bob Odenkirk talking about editing said, let's stop playing with our poop because he was like, we've done enough. We've moved it around. Not getting any better. This is it. And I'm kind of of that mind usually. Like I'm not a perfectionist. I'm, um, even as a writer, like I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I don't want to rewrite it. It's good. Let's move on. And so I'm very bad at it. So I think it's an interesting question, but I think it's good to be able to identify if you are good or bad at it. And then I think it's really good, no matter what you think you are, to get other people's perspectives. Because if you are editing something you directed, it's going to be real hard to have perspective unless you get another editor. If you can't afford to hire another editor, have another editor watch it or have some other filmmakers watch it. If you don't like what they say, ask a bunch more people and see if some of them say the same things. Because if three people say the same thing, it's a problem. If you don't do anything about something that three people suggest, then you know, you're either, you're entering the I'm a crazy genius stage mm-hmm. or I'm just making this for me and hopefully there's enough me's out there, which is fine perhaps, but I, I'm, I'm not that type. Like I, I, would, I would err on the side of listen to the people, especially at this age. But I think that it's so personal and some people are so, some people, what makes them good at directing is a stubbornness and a certainty and a confidence in their vision. So 
sometimes as a producer, I've been in situations where I was like, you know what? We're riding this horse. This is the horse we backed. In other situations, I've thought it's great to have that second perspective from the editor who cut stuff and made it move differently and, you know, suck the air out, like you said. I think editors benefit from assistant editors and having other people organize footage because then they look at it fresh. You know, it's like a chef and having the ingredients prepared. So I think that you're better off with a more collaborative, more people in the process system than when you're just kind of trying to figure it out yourself. That's my take. I also want to sort of call out when you're reaching out to people who to give feedback and and taking note of like, if three people are saying this is an issue, it's really an issue. On the flip side, I've had problems where I, I feel like I reach out to people and it's like, oh, gold star, you did it. And a lot of them are just friends who care about me and aren't working in the industry. And I'm like, I don't want a gold star for putting it together and assembling it. Like, I want to know if I'm making you feel something. I've talked about the project that I worked on in the past that I ended up like recutting from a totally different perspective and found the story in the edit. And Charles was one of the people who was like, this isn't working. Uh, And then, you know, months down the line after cracking the story that I didn't shoot, a totally different story, then I got the feedback from Charles like, oh, you cracked it. You did it. And that was like a signal to me because I too was feeling mushy about it because I had spent so much time with it. Yay, Charles. Nice work. Buddy. No, no. <laughs> I was just I mean, going to say, you reminded me of something that I, I love what you just said, that when I was younger, what I was looking for in notes and reactions from friends was a gold star. Right now, if I created something and people gave me the gold star note, I would know that probably what I created was bad and they didn't have the patience to talk to me about why, because I think Mm. that the gold star note is bad news. But when I was younger, that's what I was expecting. And when I didn't get it, I was like, oh man, it sucks. I can't fix it. That's a failure, F. But now I would think F would be the gold star. Because that, to me, that would just mean somebody was like, yeah, great. Talk to you later. (laughs) You did it. Like, I don't, so I don't have because, time to tell you what's wrong with this. Well, it's just funny here to hear you say that you're like, I feel like when I share my work with my friends, I get encouragement because like I have like a longstanding group of filmmakers I share stuff with and like they're all vicious. And like I was obviously I was vicious on your first cut, which it was deserved. Your first cut needed a lot of work. But like, yeah, I wonder what it is about the culture I've attracted to people of like I have friends who are vicious in even like inappropriate times. I have someone that like the work was released and they were like, you know, I feel like you picked the wrong song on this. And like here are my four ideas for what song would have been better. And I was like, the work is released. I'm not pulling it from release to fix a song note. Like once the work is released, you should just like keep your notes to yourself. In my opinion, like I'm not going to go up to someone who's like, Oh, it's out. It's being distributed and be like, you know, this scene, although, you know, there is that story of the Duffer brothers have been recutting some parts of stranger things. And famously they cut two minutes out of blood simple for the re-release. The director's cut is shorter. So like, maybe I guess that is like the filmmakers you attract. My two big notes for you, Gigi are, One, it's the discipline of habit. Like I worked in commercials and music videos for a long time and you get very good at getting something client ready before you show them. And the only way I think you can do that is practice is over and over and over again. You send stuff to clients and you get this sense of like, oh, this is going to be playing too long. Oh, this isn't going to be working. And it's just like one of the beauties of like working in a post house or, or working in a production company is like you're around so much that's happening 
that you get to develop that even if it's not on your own work as you're like checking stuff before it goes out. The other thing is do test screenings forever. I still think about, it's so weird. A couple of years ago, I was working on this project and the executive producer was like, I never do test screenings because you know you always get all this confusing stuff from the audience at the end. And it's like, you should just trust your gut and make your movie. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I often don't take notes I get at test screenings. Like I remember one test screening on my feature, like there are two characters that are just friends. And this one guy was like, man, I was so disappointed they didn't get married in the end. And like, it had never crossed any, like there was no sexual tension. It was not that movie. It was not like one character, his wife was dead and he was in mourning. And I was like, you know, you can ignore notes, like learning just what- like a hopeless romantic trying hopeless to find romantic. love in a hopeless place. <laughs> learning to ignore notes is one of the disciplines of filmmaking. But what a screening is great for is being in the room with five to 20 people while they watch your project. And if you're a human being, you will feel their reactions. And like, and it's separate from laughter. Like laughter is huge if it's a comedy, although you're not going to get a lot of laughter with like three people in the room. But when it's slow, you will know. When they're engaged, you will know. When they're confused, you will know. Because we're human beings. Like we're tied in emotionally to each other. And like being in a room with 20 people watching your movie, like I think it's always worth organizing that for anything you care about. Because I don't think you know the edit is working if you haven't sat in a room to see what effect it has on people. And often, like what they are able to articulate later is irrelevant. It's great. I've gotten great notes at test screenings, but that's not the most important part for me. The most important part for me is sitting in a room with an audience and feeling their reactions to what's working and what's not. That is so true. Like that, like I think we all know that feeling of like you you have something that you think is actually pretty good, and you start showing it to someone, and that that feeling like the hairs on the back of your neck on that one part that like subconsciously was kind of bothering you. And you you see, watch them seeing that part, and you're like, okay, that definitely needs to change. But it didn't really feel quite as urgent until you showed it to someone. So I I fully agree with that. I think screenings is a big thing, and especially like when you show stuff to people, I like to know what they like. I like to kind of know them and their sensibilities because even with like life advice, like I always kind of say like take it from context of the way that person perceives things. So like if mm-hmm. that you know you you temper someone's advice based on what you know of their tastes and and so like okay they think that way about it. And and in that way I think you kind of retain your own creative like sort of approach to taking feedback is like you know okay well that person usually likes this sort of thing. So maybe I could you know kind of take it in this direction and it kind of comes back to a, a a phrase that I always apply to everything it's like I, I want to get t-shirts made but it's it's address the note so if you get the same note multiple times you don't have to do exactly what they're saying to do just address in some way their feeling on it and and I do that with client work I do that with you know, feedback on my own personal stuff is like if if three or four people are saying the same thing, but you don't really agree or you don't really think that that pertains to your creative vision, like there's always some creative way to find a way to make some sort of alteration. In terms of like staying, you know, within the context of making an edit, like sort of staying in tune with the viewer, there's kind of two different ways you can go with it. It, it really depends on on the sort of time you have. But like, so my, the first, you know, five, six years of my time in this industry, I was cutting trailers. For five or six years, I made a trailer a week for shows and cartoons and movies and stuff. And there was no like part of the process before, you know, we, we, we were making these in a vacuum. It was, you know, you'd have two to three days to do the, the cut and you'd have two to three days to do the motion graphics. 
and then you'd be sending it to the client. And I just got really good at sort of learning context in terms of an edit. So I obviously with a trailer, it's not too it doesn't take too much time to watch the full two minutes of your cut. You know, you can just go back to the beginning and watch it and go, okay, this part's getting kind of slow, this part's getting kind of slow. But when you're cutting, you know, a feature length doc or something, what I often do when I'm feeling kind of out of touch with the audience is I'll I'll skip to the end and I'll start cutting the last act of the thing so that I know where we're going and I know the vibe of where we're headed. And then that also kind of keeps things interesting for you. You're not stuck in this one zone that you're kind of like losing touch with the edit. You're kind of, you know, not feeling it. Just skip to a different part and start cut like, you know, if there's like some cool footage, some cool like nighttime driving around footage that you want, you know, in your head, you're like, you see a cool montage happening, skip to that part and start cutting that. And you'll be like, oh, that vibe would kind of play with the thing earlier. And then it like unlocks a whole new kind of realm. But for me, it's like I love to watch, you know, I my my clients always kind of laugh at me because when I want to watch like even 30 seconds into an edit. I still always go to the very beginning and I'll just watch it. And, and you know, my wife makes jokes because she hears me p- replaying the same like uh-huh. 30 seconds of an edit over and over and over. And I'm like, well, it's because I, I have to feel it from that point, you know? Uh, but it is really hard. Like if you have the time to take walks and, and come at it with fresh eyes, that's always really good. But, you know, sometimes you don't have that. Sometimes you like, I, I always kind of put myself in a situation where like, I literally have to do this today. So <laughs> just put the dang clips on the timeline and let's move on. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, it's, I, I, I think it's just really important to think about context. I just want to throw one more thing out. I've interviewed a lot of editors on the No Film School podcast. So go back and look through some of them. More recently, editor of Top Gun, really interesting. But there's always some gems that they drop in those things. And I can't remember all of them. But I interviewed Walter Murch a long time ago. I'll share the link in the show notes for people. To me, he's like one of the great masters of the craft. And his the books he's involved in, like The Conversation, which Charles and I have talked about a lot, but just his genius. And he talks about the idea of, of how he edits through feel and how it's almost musical. And there's a timing that he just feels like, and he's looking for a certain beat. And then he comes in like before that. It's just, it's beautiful <laughs> the way he talks about it. Yeah. And I just can't, like, if you want to love Like the way Todd, the way you were just talking about it, I think there's something that can be a slog, but I think there's something that there's, there's art, like someone molding a pot of clay sometimes and, and there's a, or weaving a loom or whatever you want to use as a metaphor. But I think that if you get into it like that, maybe it's less of a slog and you start to find the art in just the timing and the craft and all that. And he talks about it in that way. It's inspiring. Absolutely. I think it it really has a lot to do with what it is that you're editing, though. <laughs> There's definitely some stuff yeah. that you can't avoid the slog yeah. factor. There is that feeling when editing where it does feel, I do feel like the thing clicks into place and you get a rhythm for a particular section that then, like you were saying, Todd, it almost like unlocks other things in the edit. And I I do know that feeling in my gut when it happens and it's the best, it's the best feeling in the world. It's like one of the most satisfying feelings in the world. And it's worse. Maybe it's the runner's high of editing, you know, mm, going back to our sort of marathon. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just had a, an edit session with uh, just a, a guy I did a short film with and, and we, 
you know, we knew we needed to shave at least like three minutes out of this. It was like a 16 minute film. And man, we had this one, there's this one scene where a character's decision didn't really make sense. And we sat and looked at it for the longest time. And we shot the movie like five months ago. So we're, we both like kind of hate it at this point. We're tired of looking at it. And we had the idea of just taking a single shot from the very beginning of the film and just sliding it into this one part. And it, the whole thing snapped into place. And it was honestly like one of the most exhilarating creative feelings I've had in months. And we we like, you know, fist bumped and high fived. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you don't get that sitting in front of a computer very often. (laughs) You know, it was a really good feeling. No, when you find something in post that fixes a problem, we were doing all these test screenings on my thesis 20 years ago. And we had two child actors. And, you know, child actors, they were, they were both good, but they didn't look quite close enough to each other. But they're supposed to be the same character, one at five and one at 10. And nobody got that it was the same character. And oh. finally, my uh, editor was like, what if we just dissolve between a shot of one to a shot of the other? And I was like, how did that never occur to us? And it just worked. And we never had that complaint in a test screening again. <laughs> and I still think about like how beautifully this like completely unplanned thing is that like you find in post and you're like, oh, well, that solves that problem. The other thing I really want to flag that Todd talked about was knowing who is giving you feedback. Because I have one friend who like loves a slow movie, like loves a slow movie. Like, you know, his, <laughs> his general note on every cut he sees is like, man, you got to slow that down. You're rushing it. <laughs> That's horrible. Like, I'm like, and I'm like, you know, he's ever. like really into art cinema. Like he wants to go watch, you know, like he wants to get absorbed in the aesthetic moment and have time to look around a shot and settle into it. And like his note is always slow it down. Always. And I'm like, I want him to like get invited to a test screening for a Baz Luhrmann movie sometime. And something that's like so clearly intentionally frenetic and see if he says like, man, you got to slow that down. Um, <laughs> because it's not a note that works on everything. Like some things are designed to be fast, Baz Luhrmann. But, you know, you want to have context. If you can show it to people that you understand them, that is often helpful. Can I also throw, this is such a good topic. There's one more thing I'm just remembering because so many people, I've I've heard such great advice from people throughout my life that not for me or my work, but in general, and it's coming back to me in drips and drops. (laughs) Like one of the things that I've heard a lot of people say different ways is it's kind of like diagnosing the note. Like sometimes what the note is from somebody is it's like a symptom, but it's not the disease. And sometimes Mm. what happens to us as creatives is we hear the note and we kind of push back because we're like, that's dumb because of the way it's articulated or it's like, it's like, no, I don't. The problem isn't my fever. The problem is my body is sick. Like I'm fighting a virus, you know? And I think a lot of times we reject notes because someone will talk about it like, I don't really like that character. And you'll kind of be like, God, that's just stupid. Like, that's not the point. I don't want you to, I don't care if you like the character or not. Like whatever, maybe it's a bad example. And some, maybe some of us are less, aggressive about notes we don't like than that. But I think that there's an instinct of pushback sometimes because we're not looking at the note and thinking, okay, what do they really mean? Like, what's the problem in my thing that's inspiring them to say X? Because there's something, they're reacting to something. And if you, I think what, what can make you like go from good to great is if you can look at notes that way and see what is actually behind the note, or I've heard people call it the note behind the note, but like that there's, I like disease and not the symptom, but like figure out what it is that's really going on because then you're like reverse engineering your machine and you know it well enough in theory to do that and then see, oh, okay, 
maybe they don't like him because it cuts too fast or we skipped over that one scene. But another thing I've noticed just, just in general is that if you're relying on dialogue to convey meaning, you're probably in trouble. Like it's a visual medium. So editing is probably a place where you can tell like, well, people aren't getting stuff and it's in the dialogue. That's not so great. Like the emotional beats, like it's a visual medium, you know? The cuts, even if the visual isn't like expressive, it's like the cut becomes the visual, right? That tells you what's happening and what meaning is. And there's something to trusting that the audience can piece things together. I think it's so, it's such a natural instinct to want to make sure that all the information is there. And I think that's why a lot of people rely heavily on dialogue, especially as they're sort of Get, getting their building their foundation as a filmmaker, but also if you look at some of the the best moments in film, it's like, well, what's unsaid is the most powerful thing, and often you can kind of like cut out of a scene. It sounds so cheesy, but like cut out way earlier or come in way later, or just simply cut out the dialogue and let their let the performances do what what was written. And I think that's something that's really scary to do, but often it like creates so much more nuance. Editing. <laughs> I, I don't have a good transition, but our next subject is a great new uh, phrase. You know, I mean, filmmaking is filled with amazing phrases and uh, Gigi brought up another one that I had never heard, but I love, and I'm going to start using, which is do nothing, stay ahead, which isn't really applicable to editing because you have to do things in editing. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about do, no- do Nothing and Stay Ahead and the philosophy behind it? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, it came up in the context of I'm putting on this live show fundraiser abortion special at, the, at a theater here in L.A. And uh, we're going to be featuring a bunch of video sketches, but we're going to have live show elements. But as we're sort of preparing, we don't know how long the sketches are going to be or how many are, we're actually going to get at the end of the day. And so there's a lot of like chicken and egg conversations that were happening about, uh, well, how much of the show will be live? We don't know yet because we don't have the video. How much will be video? We don't know yet. Blah, blah, blah. And um, I was talking to my DP friend, Ryan Thomas, about it and trying to sort of puzzle through, in addition to talking to Kate Downey, who's the co-founder of the Caveat Theater, who has a lot of live show experience. And she was articulating, you know, we can prep, but it's going to change closer to the show. So why are we doing it? And when I was talking to Ryan, he said, oh, do nothing, stay ahead. And I was like, ding, like, what is this thing? It's fascinating. And he explained it in the context of, you know, a gaffer could be trying to stay ahead and could set up lights in this corner, but very likely they'll have to take the lights down and all this energy is expended that didn't need to be put out because it, it, the the work wasn't ready to be acted upon. And now I'm sort of in this, I guess, a positive spiral of processing this concept because I'm like, man, I do that all the time with pre-production and it's coming from a place of anxiety. But then again, it's that balance because I love the concept of shoot your movie before you shoot your movies and making sure that you're getting everything you need. But there is also this anxiety that I've been feeding in the past where I'm like, what should I be doing? And really, I need to just be waiting. 
which sounds counterintuitive. So yeah, that's that's the impetus. And I'm so curious to hear all of your guys' thoughts on this. Well, thanks for bringing it up. It's a great concept. But I'll yeah, let Charles I, and Todd start. <laughs> this is like a, a, a very near and dear to my heart subject, honestly, because it's, there's nothing that... The way I always put it is like efficiency to the point of inefficiency. It's like this thing where there's just certain personality types that just feel like you have to just plan constantly and do all this planning. And and then you get there and everything's different. And, and you know, I think there's something to be said for like being in the mindset of planning is good. And like thinking of different eventualities is very, uh, uh, you know, very useful thing to do. For, for me, it's like there's nothing more frustrating than your plan not really working out. And you have to be nimble and you have to be able to adapt to whatever situation, you know, like even on a very, like very, very base level. When I first started out, I would, I would walk into a, a set and start lighting it before I had ever set up the camera and looked through a monitor at it. And that, I, I learned very quickly that that's not a good way to operate because you get the camera up and then you start moving, you, you start actually putting the lights where they're, they're going to go. And, and to me, that's kind of like such a good example of like that sort of thing where it's just like, you just feel like this mad rush to be productive and to do things. And we all need to be doing things because this is film production and we should be active. And if you just make the same decisions in a calm, cool, collected way and with authority and just be like, okay, we're here, let's put the light over here. Basically, the struggles that your DP friend was talking about, I, I very much so relate to. It's like the the moving the lights around constantly because something changed or whatever. When really in reality, you know, it the actual lighting setup may, may take a half hour if you just like, you know, have everything locked into place. I mean, I think this is one of those things where like, you know, I, I frequently say like everybody should spend at least a little while as a DP, which like I don't think is true. There's plenty of like, you know, David Lean was never a DP, like went straight from editing to directing, clearly understood directing. But like there's this habit, like the DP example is such a good one because there's this habit some people get in of like, all right, well, the actors are running late. Can you start lighting anyway? And it's like, well, I really need to watch a blocking rehearsal. Like I have this whole habit of like, you know, when I'm on a little show, like we blurt, we block, then we light, then we rehearse, then we tweak, then we shoot. Like block, light, rehearse, tweak, shoot. Like once I see where everyone's standing, then I can put a bunch of lights up. But like I can just put stuff up now. But if I don't know where everybody's standing, I'm going to have to move it all. So let's wait and sit in the moment. One of the hardest things about like do nothing, stay ahead for me is they've done a bunch of studies on like the decision-making process and the most successful people can generally be evaluated by the people who understand best when to make a decision. Because if you wait too long to make a decision, it can totally fuck you over, right? Like if you're like, if you're still on set and you're deciding like between like, is my character angry or is my character sad? And you're like, I'm going to do a take of each. You're going to waste your whole day doing one take of each of every single, like, you know, like you have to make some decisions. There's the right moment to make a decision. And what a lot of people discovered when they were studying this is that most people make decisions too early. And they don't give themselves the time to really explore all of the options before making a final decision. So one thing you should be thinking about as a filmmaker is, do I need to make this decision yet? And if you do, you have to make it decisively, right? Like once you're on set or frankly, like in pre-production, like three weeks out from like, you know, there's stuff that you need to decide three weeks out. Like you need to pick a location often because there's a deadline or you're going to lose something if you don't have a deposit in time. Like you have to make a decision at the right moment. But if you make a decision too early, you're wasting effort and you're locking yourself out of a lot of the decision tree that would be available to you. So like 
I've, and this is something that like I've often had trouble with with collaborators where I'll be collaborating with someone and they'll be like, we have to lock this down now. And I'm like, I, I can't lock this down now. Like, I haven't seen the actors in the space yet. I'd like to see the actors in the space and then I'll make decisions. I'm, I'm not going to back myself into a corner where I'm making decisions before I need to. Because every time you make those decisions, there's like cascading tree of decisions you're locking down too. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I, very early in my career, I was working on this commercial and the boards were all one shot. And I was like, oh, we could probably save money and just rent one lens because it was all one shot. And I was like, oh, well, once we know what the shot is, we'll do a previs. We'll know what the lens is. And we wanted to shoot master primes. And those used to be expensive, if you can believe it or not. And I was like, oh, we'll save like $300 in the budget. We'll just rent one master prime instead of all five or eight or whatever. And the director just looked at me and was like, well, what if I change my mind? That's worth $300. And I was like, oh, the director having the freedom to change their mind is worth $300. Absolutely. Absolutely. In that particular budget, which was like a commercial budget and they had real money. Like I was like, yes, yes, it's well worth spending $300 to give you the flexibility to make that decision later. We don't have to make this decision two weeks out when I'm making my camera list. We can make it at the time. So for me, do nothing is like do nothing until you have until the right moment. And I think a large part of the journey of filmmaking is learning when the right moment to make a decision is. Because if you delay on decisions, we've all worked for those directors who like hem and haw and hem and haw and all this time gets wasted because they can't make up their mind. You have to make up your mind at the right moment. But I think most people err on making it too early. That's what I get out of this. Yeah. For like, for me, a classic example of this is when the AD or producer, whoever of whatever I'm shooting will ask me how long will load in take for a specific, you know, location before I've done a location scout. And so I'm, I always just kind of shrug, like, I don't know, give or take 30 minutes to two hours. I don't know. Like I have (laughs) to see, like there might be, what if there's no ramp for the cart? What if we have to, you know, bring in piece by piece by hand? What if I have, remind me, how many uh, grips and gaffers do I have? Like how many people do I have carrying stuff? Like if you can't answer these questions for me, or if I can't go to the location and see, like it's a complete waste of time for me to say any number to you right now. And then, you know, you get there and it's like, oh, this is going to take a little bit longer than I thought. And then, you know, everyone's behind schedule and everyone's in a bad mood because someone was, you know, uh, what's remind me what the saying is do nothing, stay ahead. Someone wasn't doing that. Stay ahead. Yeah. It's sort of hard to ever advocate for the do nothing on the one hand with production, because it feels like everything is so urgent and everything has to be happening and everybody has to be working and, Everything is expensive, all that. On the other hand, it's hard for me to ever think that do nothing is a bad idea, just on principle, <laughs> because it's always preferable. I feel like Todd, like I, I, I'm so familiar with the other side of the coin that you're talking about, where it's like there's such a chicken in the egg or cart before the horse, or pick your metaphor. Like, because you'll say to a DP, if you're a production manager or producer, you'll be like, okay, I'm trying to figure out what time we'll need to get here or how long I'm going to need this location or how much time before the company move or whatever. You're trying to put this jigsaw puzzle together, right? And what's the first piece? And oftentimes there's an obvious one, but other times everybody's kind of looking at each other and it's like, well, I don't know because I don't have blank. And you're like, well, then I can't, if you don't know that, then I don't know this. (laughs) It's just like this kind of tricky process of piecing together what the situation is going to look like. But I think that it's stressful for everyone if people wait too long 
because when you're on set and you know that setups take a while and things aren't set, like I would almost say for mental health reasons, it makes sense to just, instead of do nothing, just be like, Hey, let's get all our lights out of their bags and like put them around the room or something. (laughs) Like let's get the, let's get the C stands up. Let's get, because there's such a stressful feeling of like, okay, now we're ready to light this. And then you're like, okay, that's another what? 10, 15 minutes or more. So sometimes. So I think that it's generally ill-advised to truly like just wait because everyone could wait on something. Something has to be a domino to fall. It's just psychologically helpful to be like, okay, people are, are like tweaking things or they're moving around, they're buzzing, they're humming, they're in their zone, you know. That's my take, at least. Like the idea of do nothing to stay ahead sounds scary and not realistic. But I think I think that's where Charles's point comes in of making the decision at the right time. Because if you do get the location scout and you you have even maybe time for a pre light, you know that that means all of those problems that you just talked about went away. And you show up on set and you flick the lights on and let's go, let's, let's do some, let's make some art. I think it's more so just prioritizing when you make the decision and try to make it, you know, at the best time. It's also trying to be economical and I get that. And there is a timing factor and there's such a context because like you said, maybe there's a pre-light, maybe there's not, maybe no one's even been to the location before, maybe who knows, you know? So I think maybe you start setting up the lights and one of them is not working the way it was supposed to. So it would have been helpful to have it up before. Maybe you pull out a flag and it's ripped. I don't know. Like thing, crazy things happen. And so I feel like it's good to be making progress in some way. But I get the idea that like you'll just be rearranging it later. I also just know like people will be like, well, what are they doing? Why isn't anyone working? You know, that's, that's something you're going to hear. Like it's going to come from someone. Um, I mean, I think this is less about life on set and more about pre-production and bigger picture issues of filmmaking in general. Like, obviously on set, like, you want to have a C-stand farm going or forest where, yeah, I mean, all your C-stands should be ready to go so you can just grab them. They shouldn't still be folded up. And, like, you know, there's certain, like, long experience crews are usually good at, like, what are the things I can set up properly that aren't going to get in the way that are, like, going to make it so I can move more quickly? And so, like, I seldom see people sitting around on set, except sometimes in mid-afternoon when there legitimately is a moment of, like, we're doing takes now and I can just, like, watch the takes. Most of the morning, like, the whole crew is buzzing. I think this is more about, like, the bigger picture issues of, like, all right, well, when you're, like, until you've seen the locations, is there any benefit in storyboarding now? Or is storyboarding now just busy work and you should instead put your energy in, like, breaking down the beats of the storyline again? like. You know, because there's stuff you can do in pre-production that you could do seven times. Like as a director, you can go through the beats of your script a dozen times if you feel like it. And eventually you will realize like, oh, these two beats can be combined or like, oh, I can compress this and expand this or whatever. And like, that's probably the better use of your time if other things have not come together. Because, you know, during pre-production it's that magical time where you start to see pieces fall into place. And sometimes you have an actor, an offer out on an actor and you're like, okay, I'm legitimately just waiting on the 24 hour offer window. So is there any benefit in focusing on this right now? Or should I focus on something else instead? I think that's more the way of thinking about it. Like what are the right things to do at the right time? Cause yeah, I mean, you know, your lights should be headed up. You should have a light on wheels ready to go. You should, you know, the big question is like, you don't want to throw your key light up and then the actor is standing on the wrong side of the room. Yeah. 
Doesn't this saying kind of sound like some version of hurry up and wait too, though? Mm-hmm. Like it's well, like, like say, it's like an antidote or something. <laughs> there's another one I've heard, which is when all else fails, do nothing. And it's like, it's that thing that happens a lot of times in a crisis where like something's happening on set and like there's some sort of drama and people are like, all right, well, let's try and fix it right away. And it's like, sometimes if it is not immediately obvious, like obviously if something's falling over, like, and you can safely get out of the way, like you get out of the way. Right. You don't try and catch it because you're just going to hurt yourself. But like, you know, sometimes a drama is happening and you're like, oh, there's no immediately obvious answer. The right move is to sit still for a second. Like when all this fails, do nothing. Napoleon had this thing where, and I don't think this works for everybody, but it seemed to work for Napoleon until Waterloo. (laughs) Up to a point. A lot of things worked for him. Where uh, he said he never answered anything that was asked in the first letter. Because he assumed by the time he would get around to doing anything to help the person, the issue would have worked itself out. And if it was really important, they would ask again in a second letter. So like Napoleon's whole thing was like, I just don't deal with any of the little stuff. I just ignore it. And I'm assuming most of the little stuff will work itself out. And the big stuff people will keep asking me to deal with. And I think that's somewhat similar to do nothing, stay ahead. It's like, a lot of stuff is going to cross Napoleon's plate where he's like, this is small. I'm not going to worry about it. Like I'm going to focus on the Italian campaign. <laughs> and um, you, you see, I'm, I'm catching the good bits where he was successful early on and he's going to worry about that. And if somebody emails him and he's like, Hey, there's this issue happening in, you know, Normandy where there's, you know, we, we, we can't figure out how to, how to administer uh, reclaiming church lands. You know, he's like, I don't know. You'll figure it out. By the time you ask me again, then I'll worry about how to reclaim church lands or whatever. And I think there's there's like a power move in that. Napoleon's inbox would be sort of like red, but unanswered emails. That's what it would be. Yes. And, and it would, I'd look at it and I'd be like, how do you have 30,000 emails? Like, don't you want to archive them? And then he's like, the important things bubble up. Yeah, uh, I'm no, I'm currently it. looking at an 8,500. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> so 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 yeah, I kind of work. I do work that way. Um, but I respond quickly when I feel. I'm not I'm no Napoleon, but I like I leave it all in the inbox. It's all there. Yeah, I I also I yeah, it's all there. I've never deleted an email. The entire email every email I've ever gotten is there. Cuz why not? All right, moving on to tech news. Our final story of the week. So uh, Da Vinci Blackmagic Resolve, which is still a very long name, but you know, whatever. It's a, a name I love. Blackmagic Da Vinci Resolve is an editing software that I've been using for a decade. I've been trying to sell everyone on for a decade. And in the last couple of years, people, including finally Todd, mm-hmm. have come around to being like, holy shit, like this thing I color grade in, should I also edit in it? And they just came out of beta with 18. So every summer they come out with software, it comes out first in beta, but they're very public with their beta, like their, their beta is available. And then, you know, a few weeks or months later, they drop the full release version. The full release version of 18 is out. And so people are starting to, to buzz about it quite a bit. The big headline feature is, in my opinion, they finally cracked cloud collaboration. So obviously, when you look at the big editing platforms, like Final Cut Pro has its own market share, which is largely like independent docs. And then there's Premiere, which is like all of branded content, all of social media content, all of like, you know, a little bit of TV, not a ton, a little bit of movies, not a ton. And then there's Avid and Avid has collaboration. If you're doing the Olympics, you need 30 people cutting the same media, you're doing Avid. All the big networks are Avid. All the big movies are Avid because you have a bunch of people working on the same pool of media. Blackmagic has come in with these cloud tools in 18 
that are everything that you thought Adobe Creative Cloud was going to be when it came out 10 years ago. Like when Adobe Premiere Creative Cloud came out 10 years ago, I was like, holy shit, you mean it's going to be really easy now for me to share projects with people like across the country and it's just going to be like seamless and fluid and it's just going to work? And like Creative Cloud was like, no, it's just our name, but it still doesn't really work in the cloud. Or at least that was my experience. And I tried it a bunch. And 18 does it. Like I just did this job in July and like, you know, I did the dailies because I wanted to, you know, I shot it. I did the dailies. The editor was in Manhattan. Manhattan's kind of far from Brooklyn. Um, you know, city shit. And so the editor was cutting in Manhattan and like, you know, he'd finish cutting and he'd just drop me a text and he'd be like, edit ready. And then like, I would just open the project and it was the same project. He wouldn't have to email me a project file. We didn't have to worry about versioning. It was just like the same project. And I would just open it and we use Dropbox to sync media and I would just open it and, and it was there and I'd like make some tweaks and I'd color and I'd repatch to the full res and just give it to cloud. And it was like, it was everything cloud was supposed to be. And it's finally here. And I'm like, you motherfuckers finally did this shit. So people listening, come on, move over to cutting and resolve. I'm like the only person I know who does it. And that's ridiculous at this point because it's getting so good. Yeah. Resolve for me has always been something that like I, I, I would edit in it for personal projects, like things. I mean, obviously just like anytime I wanted better color tools and stuff. But I've just now finally decided to switch over full time and have been doing my all my client work in it and everything. And I just got it like it's just kind of blowing my mind and making me think of all the countless hours I spent dealing with Premiere crashes and just horrible things that happen in Premiere. And now none of those things happen. I the biggest reason I I hung on so long was just because I do a lot of stuff in After Effects. And I do a lot of uh, dynamic linked comps and everything between the two. But it got to a point where even those were just crashing all the time. And and the only reason I was still using Premiere just didn't even work anymore. So that's why I I was like, okay, I've had enough. And it's it's crazy. It's just crazy how solid it feels all the time. And the uh, obviously, I think we talked a little bit about some of my experience using all the cloud stuff and the uh, the cloud pod and the cloud store mini and that whole ecosystem and how well it all works with the proxy generator and the uh, the cloud workflow stuff it's just it's it's just solid and it's it works really well and i have like zero complaints about it so far and you know i just know they're going to be making it better and better and you know they have like a little chat window you can like leave little notes in and stuff it's just like really cool but the thing for me that is kind of blowing my mind and i've it's been a huge rabbit hole that i've been going down i've always known about color management stuff i've always known about you know i i've, I've worked in aces for some vfx stuff and things like that um, but i've just now as i've been getting into resolve more deeply is the all the color management stuff that you can do in in resolve particularly using the davinci wide gamut color space and it's kind of like this should be like a headline. It blows my mind because the more I thought about it, I was like, Premiere doesn't even have any sort of color space. There's like you can select different output color spaces, but you can't you can't have like an input color space and an and and a timeline color space in in an easy way. There's like ways around it. There's like little effects you can use and stuff, but it kind of blows my mind that they don't have like that instantly now that you so like if you're using DaVinci Wide Gamut, you can use all of their HDR grading tools. And it's absolutely insane to me how much more information you're able to retain in your image using this. And it's kind of making me want to cry inside that I've been mastering so many 
things that the visual quality I cared about in Premiere where I'm not able to do this at, at least as as easily. Um, and if if I'm incorrect, like I I've I know Premiere pretty dang well. Um, that and I don't think there's any anything even remotely close in in Premiere. Uh, and just sort of like having it all where you can like set it up on a project level or you can set it up as a node in your in your node tree at the end. It's it's really it's mind blowing how much better things are looking already for stuff like stuff that I've been working on lately. It, it's just making me. It's kind of breaking my brain a little bit because I just think of all the things I've I've put out through Premiere that I could have been retaining a lot more detail in the in the highlights and shadows, like even just on a on a visual basis. Like everything aside of just how much better it is to use the software, it's like oh wait, but I also just unlocked like three or four stops of dynamic range. Like what the heck have I been doing? Well, it's also crazy because I find matching cameras to be a lot easier. I know I'm. The exception in this. I know a lot of colors who like, I don't like the color management. I'd rather do it myself. But like, you know, for a long time in my career, I would, I was working on all these music videos as a colorist where like, you know, it'd be like a camera was, uh, a camera was Alexa, B camera was red for the slow-mo. And then the director would be like, yeah, and I own a 5D Mark II. So I shot some C camera and I'd be like, okay, well, we're mixing these three color spaces and I'm going to have to do that by hand and it's going to take a long time. So like that slows us down. And you know, the, the, the advice I could always give is if you wanted a faster color session, like legit just shoot one type of camera like rent three alexas or whatever and the color grade will be way faster and a couple years ago they rolled out resolve color management which works in the resolve wide gamut where like i can just go into the media pool and select and it auto selects all the black magic stuff so it knows the black magic stuff which is so cool if but yeah i know and there's a couple other brands of cameras it auto selects but i know dji it doesn't but if you go in, like I've been doing a lot of stuff lately where like A cameras Alexa, B cameras a black magic, and then C cameras a DJI 4D. And like you just select the DJI 4D and you right click and you tell it what it is. You tell it it's the DJI color space and it just automatically matches it. It doesn't use a lot. It uses a transform. So it's a little easier processing wise. And like shit, it gets it really fucking close. It doesn't get it quite close enough where I feel like I can copy and paste grades between the two. But it gets it close enough that I'm like, oh, we can do the edit now. Like, we can just edit with this. And then when it comes time to do it, it's like a very little small tweak to match the 4D. And it's funny because I did a dailies job um, a few months ago and we did a bunch of testing where we tested a bunch of just like different setups. And I sent it all through and we were using Resolve Color Management and the client was totally psyched. And then the editor cut in Premiere. And I finally saw one of the edits in Premiere and the colors were all over the map between the cameras. And I was like, ah, dude, you just if you just work and resolve and use color management, everything would look great, but you just cut it in premiere. So it all looks bad. Yeah. It, it totally, like, oh. it feels like lighting a room with a candle and then someone walked in and flipped us the light switch and you're like, Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy how much better it feels and how you just, I think like the, be, the best way I could describe it is when you're working in resolve, you feel, you just feel, especially with, with color management, like options, you feel like you're, you're really respecting what you what you're working on like you feel like you're like i'm I'm actually like getting every last drop of the data out of this image that that i can and yeah like when you when you set it up right the stock like rec 709 transform like it looks it it, it gives you like a nice pleasing starting point like right off the bat and then i think the only thing that i'm kind of still sort of figuring out maybe charles you you have some help on this but like Basically, it's rendered all of the LUTs that I'm used to kind of using for finishing and stuff. It's kind of, you know, all of those are kind of 
uh, they're, they don't work anymore because you have to get LUTs specifically for DaVinci wide gamut. Am I correct in that? Like, do you, you can't like, you can't just drop like a log LUT in, in your node tree anymore. Right. Uh, it, so there are a lot, it depends upon what the LUT was designed to do. Like there's certainly like creative LUTs that are just like some personality that if it was like a 33 point tetrahedral LUT, it should still continue to work. But if it was a LUT that was supposed to be like, if it did like a transform and a look, so it was like, oh, we're going to take your log and put it in Lin and put some personality on it. Then yeah, you wouldn't use that. That would double up the transform in the LUT. So your full palette of LUTs are no longer going to do the same things. You're going to have to rediscover or retweak. You could probably do something with Lattice. If you don't use Lattice, Lattice is like an app just about manipulating LUTs Mm -hmm. from the same people who make screen. You could probably like split it in Lattice to try and remove. Can you do splits or just combines in Lattice? Anyway, that's the end of my LUT knowledge. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, you know that's a small price to pay. I think for me, the the only thing with with Resolve is like it it almost just feels like so much is now available to me that I I I just like sometimes don't really know what to do with my hands. I'm like, okay, so I can I can do this, I can do this. Oh wow! But it it almost makes me feel like a little overwhelmed because I'm just so used to working in uh, with a lot less options. But you know that's the sort of thing that comes with more experience and. I got to say, it's, if nothing else, just like making this hard commitment to Resolve has really re-energized my love of editing in a, in a big way. Like I had really gotten to a point where I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like I'm so sick of this. Like I, I, I re- think that has something to do with using a new tool and just have being forced to learn a little bit again yeah, learning allows again. you to see differently. Absolutely. I wonder how... If like in general, there's a way for people to infuse their process with like new learning, because that seems like such a valuable insight that you had about I feel re-inspired about the process. Yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely like a thing where if I'm feeling I mean, it's just like the difference between feeling stagnant and not feeling stagnant. Like for me, I the my whole saga of getting into virtual production and, and, you know, VFX stuff like a lot more heavily was was very much so the same thing. And that was all, but you know, I got so deep into that where I was almost like, man, this other stuff really kind of sucks. But then I kind of figured out, well, working in Resolve, I can actually level up what I'm doing on the other stuff too, because now I have all these color space options I can work with. I can work with ACEs. It's really, you know, intuitive and everything. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think if you're feeling sort of like a lack of interest in something that used to be your biggest passion, like the, the best way to get out of that is to find some new thing to explore within it like i've uh cooking has always been a really really big passion of mine and i just like for the last two three or four months i was like i i don't feel like cooking anymore i feel like really bored with it so then i got really into cooking different like a you know i i I had never really mastered asian cuisine so i went really deep into cooking asian cuisine and now i'm having fun again you know (laughs) so i think it's just that's definitely a big thing yeah it's why i think people are sort of always encouraged to learn new skills, even when they become expert, because I think it makes it so you have more passion about what you're doing, just generally. For sure. Yeah, You're just trying to get back to the beginner's mind at all the time, right? Where you're like, I'm excited about all the possibilities of this stuff I can do. And like, you know, we all hit plateaus sometimes where we're like, oh, I know how to do X and I'm going to do X. And it's like, there's nothing quite that, that moment of being like, oh, I'm back at A and I can see all these new layers of shit I can do. 
It's important to Alrighty. nurture that curiosity because otherwise it can be daunting, overwhelming feeling in the mud. Yeah, I mean, this is supposed to be fun. Like, we make movies. Yeah, which is the best thing in the world. It really is. Oh, when it is, it is. <laughs> when it is, it is. When it isn't, it's the worst. <laughs> oh, God. When it isn't, you're like, why didn't I have a normal life? Why wasn't I a lawyer? I, th- I, feel, like, I feel like we really uh, covered the whole gamut of filmmaker emotions in this episode. We went from editing being a slog to high-fiving about, you know, edit breakthroughs and then learning new things and then being bored of old things. And yeah, I feel like we covered a lot. We I feel distance. supported emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you need more emotional support, where can people find you on the internet? I'm at Lost in Graceland, offering emotional support to all my followers. Uh, I'm t- yeah, I was going to say, that wasn't my best transition, because there is no emotional support. <laughs> anyway, so I take it. <laughs> uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me at Am I a Filmmaker on both Instagram and YouTube. And we're, you know, I'm trying TikTok, but I, it's not going so well. So <laughs> you can find me at those places. Uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm on YouTube and Twitter at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. Uh, my YouTube is filmmaking stuff. My Twitter is bike stuff and politics stuff. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And you can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment and send us your questions or commentary at editor at nofilmschool.com. Just email them because so many times what conversations turn to becomes something that someone brought up in an email to us and we come back to topics and we rediscuss them and we learn and you learn and we all learn together. And that's the point of this really in the end. Thanks so much for listening. The end. All right. The end. Yeah.